Well, that is a uh, beautiful hymn that I, I'm not that, I wasn't that familiar with. I, I think it's great words and so grateful to be able to sing that. You may notice right now that uh, over here there's a tree and you might have seen some presents being brought up uh, throughout the morning. That tree and the presents underneath it, that's, that's our uh, Christmas joy uh, outreach effort. And if you're not familiar with that, Bay Area Chaplains is, uh, is the group of chaplains that care for all the Contra Costa jails. And something that they do uh, is they uh, get correspondence with inmates, talk to inmates, and find out if they were present with their families at this time of year, what would they like to give their kids for Christmas? Uh, those things are then noted and taken down, and then those notes become notes on the tree in the foyer over here. And we are given the opportunity, on behalf of those inmates, to go shopping for their kids, pick up gifts, wrap them, and bring them back. They're gathered at that tree over the next few weeks, and then on the 19th, uh, we will be going out to deliver those gifts to those families. So you can be a part, and many of you are a part already, of, of caring for people who uh, right now, at this point in time, can't care for others the way they'd like to. And if you can imagine being one of those kids and receiving uh, those gifts on behalf of their parents from us, uh, it's, a, it's a very touching thing. So we're almost out of tags on the trees, on the tree in the foyer, so you might not be able to get one. There might be a few left. If you can, go ahead and grab it. Um, but we, we still need your help. If you weren't able to buy a gift, we need people to deliver them. And so on the 19th, uh, we'll be heading out and doing that. And uh, so just, just be sure to um, check in. Uh, Jennifer Splendori, where is she at? Is she, there she is. She's right there. She just raised her hand. Really, put your hand up really high. Talk to her. <laughs> She'll be back actually at the, at the table uh, later on after, after service today. So check in, sign up, and, and be a part of this. It's a beautiful way to extend, extend the love of Jesus in a time that's really hard for a lot of folks. And we love being a part of those things. So let me ask you a question. Do you believe in chance, luck, coincidence? Um, I'm not sure if you've heard this story before. If you've been here for a while, you probably have. But uh, I was thinking a lot about that this week, and it made me recall um, the way Janet and I met. Janet's my wife, by the way, if you don't know. So um, the way we met, and it's interesting because if you hear her tell it, she was going to Cal State Northridge, huge school, huge campus, and she just so happened to walk into a restroom where she just so happened to run into an old friend from high school. Uh, and her name is Jennifer Sherwood. Uh, we call her Jenny, whatever. Um, and uh, what happened was she was hosting uh, for our college group a hoedown party. And so she invited Janet to this hoedown party. And Janet had been to her house before, of course, so she, uh, you know, she's driving around and she's coming out um, you know, to, to Burbank and she's driving and looking for Jen, Jenny's house. And she can't, you know, she can't find it. She's going up this street. She, she kind of knew the landmarks, but she wasn't sure. And so she's like maybe 15, 20 minutes trying to find the house. And she's going, oh, well, forget it. I'm going home. Couldn't find it. At that moment, she's turning the car, and in her rearview mirror, she just so happens to see something very large with a white, pink, blue sign and had the number 31 on it. That's right. You know, the corporate headquarters for BNR, Baskin Robbins ice cream, is in Burbank, of all places. And it just so happened that Jenny lives literally across, just across the street from that thing. 
And so Janet remembered that, hey, I remember that. So she drove back to Baskin-Robbins headquarters, but she found something at that party way sweeter than any ice cream she's ever had before in her life. (laughs) Yeah, what was it? I don't know. Beats me. I don't know what it was. Yeah, I'm not sure. So we just so happened to meet at this party, and uh, as they say, the rest is history. So is that just chance? Did that just happen by coincidence? Well, from our vantage point now, no way. (laughs) There's no way. She didn't walk into that bathroom. Of all the bathrooms on the campus of Cal State University Northridge, she didn't walk into that bathroom at that time in that moment to happen to see our friend Jenny for nothing. Technically speaking, I actually think the BNR's headquarters is stationed right there just for the purpose of Janet and I meeting. Of course, our kids might agree with that. But uh, when we look at the way the Bible describes God's providence, we see that God is the one who orchestrates all things for his purpose. We're told that in Ephesians chapter 1. He accomplishes all things after the counsel of his will. And so this notion of, you know, just sheer chance or coincidence or luck or whatever it would be, really that's just our short-term way of applying terminology to elements of God's sovereignty and the precision with which he, he rules his universe uh, that, that we can't quite grasp. And so we kind of have those phrases that we throw out. And uh, it's a stunning thing to think about. And that's exactly what we find here in Ruth chapter 2. Uh, if you've been with us uh, since last week, of course, you know that for our Christmas series, we're going through uh, the book of Ruth. And, and you might be thinking, well, why? I mean, how is that a Christmas story? We saw last week how uh, there, there are already principles coming out where we're saying, no, this is, has everything to do with what we celebrate in Christmas. And, uh, and we'll, we'll get more to that again today, a little bit later. But, but Ruth... Uh, is, is the daughter-in-law of Naomi. And Naomi had left uh, with her husband Elimelech, had left Bethlehem and gone to the land of Moab because there was a famine. And in a very sh- short kind of span in the narrative, we find that uh, uh, you know, they have their two sons uh, and, and they're a family of, of four. And then Elimelech dies. The two sons get married. Uh, they die. And now Naomi is left with her two daughters-in-law in a situation that's precarious, both financially, uh, social status-wise. It's a dangerous and vulnerable place to be. And she's going, what should I do? And so she, she uh, tries to urge both of her daughters-in-law to, to go back to their people, because they're both Moabitesses, uh, which is the term for a, a woman of Moab, uh, that, that, that nation. And she's saying, go back to your people, because I'm, I'm empty. I've got nothing. Uh, and so uh, one of the daughters-in-law goes back, and yet Ruth clings to Naomi and says, I'm not leaving, for uh, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. And she has this massive commitment, not only to Naomi, but also to trusting Yahweh, the God of Israel. It's an astounding thing, and we talked about that last week. Um, Naomi comes back to Bethlehem. Bethlehem's a small town, and they're all kind of talking amongst themselves, wait, no way, Naomi is back. And she goes, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Why? Because Mara means bitterness. And she says, clearly, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. I've lost everything. I'm coming back empty. Uh, But in fact, she has not come back empty. Ruth is with her, her daughter-in-law. Ruth, this one who is committed to her and committed to Yahweh as well. 
And we're going to see how the Lord uses the devotion of this woman uh, to, to Naomi in, in a powerful way, not only for their family, but in reality also for the history of salvation and, 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 and the, the, the impact of God's work to send a redeemer. Uh, but we'll see that a little bit later. For now, we pick it up in chapter 2. Now, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, please let me go into the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who is of the family of Elimelech. And uh, right there we have the opening of the scene. And by the way, we're going to just go through the whole narrative and enjoy what God has to say, and then we'll circle back and apply it uh, to our lives. But we just want to let the narrative speak for itself. Um, but here we have a, a uh, this this depiction of, of Naomi, and, and there's this glimmer of hope because there's a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech. So she, he's related. He's a relative. And his name was Boaz. Now, this idea of a kinsman would be in, in, in ancient Israel. If uh, a husband died and, and there were, were no uh, children given, especially a son given, it would be considered the, the responsibility of, of the brother or of a relative uh, to then take uh, the wife, uh, the widow actually, and to, uh, to, to be with her, to have children, to take her as his own. And that way the, 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 the family line would continue. It would be a way of, of uh, serving the family and of loving um, not only the widow, but also to, to care for the fact that without the family line continuing on, uh, in a sense, the, the, the family would be left destitute in that way. And so this was something that was really an important part of Israel's history. And so the readers, or those who are first hearing this, are going, oh yeah, great, there's a kinsman. Whoa, hey, there might be hope in this situation after all. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, Ruth and Naomi need to have food. And, and again, they're in a place of, of having no provisions for themselves. And so something has to be done. And so Ruth says, hey, let me go to the field to glean. Why was that? Because there's another law in the Old Testament that described how field owners were to leave the, the perimeter of their fields unharvested so that the, those who were in need, uh, those who were destitute, those who didn't have a, a way of gaining food would have a way of coming through those fields and then gleaning. So it was an act of mercy, an act of kindness, and a way of, of caring for others. And God had that built into the law. That was just a part of, of, of what the nation of Israel would do. So Ruth wants to go glean. And, uh, and, 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 and Naomi says, go, my daughter. You, you kind of get from that phrase that Naomi's kind of like, whatever. You know, she's still in that mode of, hey, I'm Mara. <laughs> yeah, Go. And it's not really a totally safe thing to do. And so you, you, maybe you know, implied there for Naomi is just sort of like, this is such a hopeless thing. And now you're going to go out there and, 
You know, the cynicism has kicked in, right? You're going to go, who knows what's going to happen? I mean, all those things are, some things, again, in the narrative are, are, are in between the lines. It's not going to state everything. We need to kind of read it in context and see the flow and kind of we're expected as the reader to, to do a little more work and go, yeah, okay, this would, this would be very, very challenging. And, uh, and so she leaves. But notice what happens. It, here we have in, in the end of verse 3, she comes to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, this guy who was introduced in verse 1. And so again, we're going, huh, what an interesting coincidence. You know, how fascinating is that? And uh, when it has that phrase, she happened, you got to love that. Um, One translator put it this way, by sheer luck, she came upon the field allotment belonging to Boaz. (laughs) But that is kind of what the Hebrew's saying, Uh, Literally, if you were to translate it, it's, it's her chance chanced upon the field of Boaz. So there's, there is an emphatic kind of nature to the way the phrase is, is penned here. And, and so, so we find that you know, Ruth's quote-unquote chance arrival at Boaz's field was providential in two ways. First, this is the fulfillment of, of Ruth's desire in, in verse 2. Maybe I can find favor. Now, she doesn't know it yet, but we're going to find out the kind of guy Boaz is. And as it turns out, she happens... How many fields are there in, in you know, Bethlehem or in the surrounding area? Tons. She is coming to a place where her desire in verse 2 is about to be fulfilled. Secondly, it also happens to be from the same clan as Ruth's deceased father-in-law, Elimelech. Wow. Really? Both of those things? Same field? Huh. So God is obviously at work in this. But the, narr- the, the narration continues. Verse 4. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant who is in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? The servant in charge of the reapers replied, She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from morning until now. And she's been sitting in the house for a little while. Then Boaz said to Ruth, listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go and glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go in after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. And she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, and how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to seek refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Again, as the account continues here, Boaz comes from Bethlehem in verse 4 and, and talks to the crew that's there at its field. And, uh, and, and you, you kind of think about that. You know, Boaz had come to the very field that Ruth had hoped to glean in. And so it's, 
It's not, we're not sure how much earlier Ruth arrived, uh, but, but the timing is, again, another remarkable so-called coincidence uh, that Ruth got there in time for Boaz, that they would actually see each other. And, and you can kind of see the kind of guy, guy Boaz is right, right off the bat with how he greets his servants and how they greet him. Now remember, this is the, the period of the judges where everyone did was right in their own eyes. This is not known as a high point in the history of Israel in terms of their godliness and in terms of their following after the law with zeal. And yet here we find Boaz is a guy who is encountering in his daily life uh, very much um, the person of God. He's speaking of God with others. And you can kind of see the relationship he has with his his, his workers. And, and that they would respond with to Boaz in that way is also, again, another indication of there's something happening here in this field with what Boaz is doing that is very different probably from everything that's happening around him in the other fields. And then Boaz notices Ruth and asks about her. And we, we look at that phrase, you know, whose young woman is this? And it sounds sort of like, well, that's kind of, you know, <laughs> kind of a degrading statement. That's, that's not really, culturally, that's not what it would be. Uh, he, he's really asking about who's caring for her. That's the idea. He's assuming that she is in some way attached to maybe a husband or, or, or possibly a, you know, a family or, 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 you know, we're not sure. There's some context. So he's, he's asking more, what's the sphere under which she kind of lives and abides? Who, in whose care is she? And then he finds out, hey, remember that, that Moabite woman we've all been hearing about? That's her. That's essentially what, what the worker says. She's, she came back with Naomi. She's asked to glean here with the reaper. She's been here since morning. Um, and she's sitting in the house for a while. By the way, that phrase, tough, and some of the translators are going, what, what's, what's the deal with that? But essentially, she's been here since morning, is what he's saying. She's been here for a while. And there she is, you know, uh, working. And, 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 uh, and so then Boaz speaks to her. And, and look at verse 8. Listen carefully, my daughter. Uh, this is kind of like how Naomi had referred to her before. And so it's intended to kind of break down sort of the natural barriers that are between them. Um, it's also to, to demonstrate again that he wants her uh, to, to be safe and to be cared for. And so then he says, when he says, listen carefully to me, that, that idea actually can be more along the lines of, have you not heard? In other words, do you realize this? Do you understand this? That, that a young woman out gleaning by herself in this day and age Amongst these, these fields in ancient, you know, well, it's not ancient, but at that time in Bethlehem, to be here, uh, it's, it's, it's not safe. It's actually a, a dangerous place to be. By the way, side note, um, if you're ever there in Bethlehem, it still kind of isn't a safe place to be. <laughs> so um, many years ago, we were given the privilege of being able to, to, to go uh, to um, Israel and, and tour it. And, and when you go into Bethlehem, your tour guide has to change. You don't get the same tour guide going into that area uh, because uh, it's, it's, it's a Palestinian-controlled area. And when you go through, there's like a fence. There's like barbed wire. Uh, when we happened to be there that year, um, I think the Pope was coming through on a tour, so everything was all cleaned up. But apparently there's graffiti all over the place uh, all the time with, the, with the, the barriers between that portion uh, of, that, of, of that area versus the rest. So not to mention everyone wants to sell you everything they can sell you. So you walk and you walk past there and it's, you know, here I have um, the chalice that Jesus used at the Last Supper. It's like, really? I was kidding around with one of them. We were walking by. I'm like, hey, but do you have the ark? He's like, yeah, come with me. I'm like, no, no. <laughs> I was joking. No. 
But so Bethlehem is that way. Kind of, it's, not, it's not the safest place. All right? But at this time, again, Boaz is saying, be careful. Be careful and listen closely to me. And then, and then he goes on to describe the provision he has for her. He, he's saying, stay with my workers. Why? Because when people see you, they're going to consider you as being with them. And they know who I am, and this is my field, and I am essentially the protector here. And then he goes on to talk about how he, he has uh, spoken to his people regarding her. And he said, I have commanded them, I have told them explicitly that they are not to, to harass you in any way. And so, um, you know, there's, there's a way in which he's saying, I don't want you to be unsafe and I'm going to care for you. I'm going to protect you. He also goes on to encourage her to drink water from the very jars of water that are there for his workers. And, and look, getting water in the ancient world was an involved, time-consuming, well-planned priority. It was not that, you know, we're, we're, we take water for granted. I mean, we just walk around and we, you know, we're in, a, we're in a drought right now. I still drank a glass of water this morning, didn't even think twice about it. But for them, getting water? You had to go to the well. You had to draw it. You had these massively heavy containers. And they would take these containers out to the field. Someone had to transport them. Water is heavy. You know, I go to the water store. I got those water bottles. I'm like, man, I'm getting old. I can't do this. And these people, these are massive containers. And they're just like, you know, bonk. There are some places in the world where, where women will walk around with those jars on their heads. Just walk along going, okay. That's a, that's a level of skill and toughness I am not even close to, right? But that's, water was a big deal. So when he says to them, drink from the jars that are here for my servants. Wow, what a kindness. In the hot, you know, Bethlehem's son laboring that she would have access then to be able to drink. The provision of grace. And, uh, and that would be, again, a way of him having her identify with her people so that when people saw that, like, oh, she's with them. Well, all of this just overwhelms Ruth. And notice in verse 10, she falls on her face, bows to the ground, and says, why have I found favor in your sight? I, I don't deserve this. You know who I am. You know where I'm from. You know I am not one of your people. I'm a Moabite. I'm here, but I'm not like your servants. Why would you be so kind to me? Also, without question in her heart, as one who trusts Yahweh, she's thinking back to what she said in verse 2. Maybe I'll find someone in whose sight I can find favor. Wow. Has she ever? More than she could have imagined. So she expresses gratitude. And Boaz replies. And he talks about all that she's done for Naomi. And you got to realize something. This is the first time in the narrative that someone has actually spoken to Ruth and given encouragement and praise to God for what she's done. It's the first time. This is the first person who has actually seen her and given thanks. I mean, even, even you know, if you think about, uh, I was talking to some guys this week, and someone mentioned this, and it's a good point. You, you think about last 
week when we talked about Naomi coming back. What does Naomi say? I've come back with nothing. And, you know, Ruth is standing like right there. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, really? Wow. You know, kind of a lack of appreciation. But no, Boaz sees. And he commends her, but he doesn't just commend her. He talks about how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth in verse 11. See that phrase? That phrase, uh, from, a, from the way the language lays out there in that phrase, it is very similar to the Old Testament's description of Abram when he left Ur by faith. God called him to leave. There was a people he knew, and he left. Uh, very similar in terms of the way that's laid out. And so in verse 12, Boaz gives her a blessing. And what a pretty, just, it's a beautiful picture. It's a touching picture when he says, may the Lord reward your work and wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to seek refuge. And so there's that picture of, of uh, a hen and the little chicks under the hen's wings. And um, just the protection, the safety, the, the warmth. I, I, I'm not sure if chickens can be happy. Okay, I don't know if that's possible. I can, I can ask the Sanders. They would know if chickens can be happy. But there is that sense where little chicks under the wings, they kind of make that sound, that little chirping, like, hey, you know, like, mommy, you know, I'm happy. Like that kind of thing. Does that sound? Does that sound? Maybe not. Anyway, uh, maybe I'm reading into it. I've just seen too many cartoons. I don't know. But the, point, the picture here would be that, right, where there's safety under the wings, and there's a, there's a sense of peace and joy and, and knowing, okay, I'm okay now. I'm, I'm in the refuge. I'm safe. That's the picture. Well, Boaz's kindness doesn't, doesn't end there. Notice what happens in verse 14 and following. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here that you may eat the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and, and he served her roasted grain and she ate and was satisfied and had some left. When she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servants, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not insult her. Also, you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. It's mealtime. You know, the workers have worked several hours. It's time to stop. That's what happens when you're laboring in the field. You're, you're fatigued, you're tired, and you need, you need some refresh here. And you think of that meal. And of course, this time of year, we, we think of meals all the time, right? The Christmas meal table, that's a, that's a beautiful symbol, isn't it, of kindness and love. And, and, and you can imagine kind of, maybe you think of Charles Dickens' The Christmas Carol, right? And how Bob Cratchit invites Scrooge to his family home, right? Or you kind of see how that's an act of, of love and hey, join us, be with us. And maybe you can even think of a time when, when people have scrambled around to fit extra chairs around this wonderfully crowded table. You know, people are elbow to elbow. Uh, and and this, that's what's happening at this time. You know, we're, we're all engaged. Christian ministries of all kinds, Christian brothers and sisters of all kinds are trying to care for others, um, reaching out to, 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 the, to folks that are lonely, reaching out to those who don't 
uh, have some of the basic necessities. They're reaching out to neighbors and, and friends. Maybe, uh, maybe there's an international student that you know that doesn't have any family close by. And, and so there's this kind of come, come to the table. Come, join us. Be with us. There's warmth. There's fellowship. There's grace here. And, and that's what Boaz is actually doing here. The workers have done all that work for several hours, and it's time to pause for refreshment. And, and so the work, you know, may have stopped maybe, but, but the, the kindness of God through Boaz has not stopped. And so Ruth is off in the distance. You can kind of see, wait, she knows, no, I, I, don't, I don't belong there. I don't have a right to that food. It probably looked really good after all that labor, but that's not, it's not for me. Uh, I don't have the right to expect to partake in the refreshment offered in this meal. So she gets that, and you know, I'm not an employee of Boaz, I'm not of his people. And yet what happens? Boaz invites Ruth to join them for the meal. And even the way he does this is so generous. He, he doesn't just offer her bread. He says, take your bread and dip it in the vinegar. And to us, we're going, vinegar, really? Like, okay, I don't know. And I, and I realize, hey, balsamic vinegar, eh, it's pretty good. A little olive oil, balsamic vinegar, and some bread, it's good stuff. Well, to them, what this most likely was is wine that perhaps has, has gone older than it would be used for, for like table wine. And so they, they wouldn't waste it, though. They would still use it. And so it's some sort of wine mixture of some sort and, and with, with vinegar, and that you would dip your bread in it, it would just give this wonderful, flavorful seasoning to the bread. So he's saying, he's not just content to say, hey, have some bread. He's saying, no, dip it in this, dip it in the sauce, you know? I mean, some things you just got to have the sauce, right? I mean, do you go to Chick-fil-A and not get the sauce with your little chicken? No, you get the Chick-fil-A sauce, right? You get that. We're a dipping culture. We know what this means, right? So that's what he's saying to her. He's saying, hey, enjoy don't just, don't just subsist. Don't just get nourishment. Join us here at the table and enjoy. And again, this would have been as shocking for her as it probably was for the people around him. They're probably going, she's, come, she's joining us? Huh. What a kindness. Not expected. Not, not something that would be uh, customarily sort of given. And the other thing for, for, for Ruth, think about this. You know what's probably happening in her mind? When was the last time I've had a meal of this quality? She's been on subsistence living for a long time. And now she's invited to partake of the good stuff. And she's overwhelmed again. Boaz goes on, though. You would, you would, it's, it's, it's almost like there's lavishing grace, and then there's more grace, and there's more grace coming from him. Because what happens is, well, the meal's over, and, and, and she has some left over, right? So apparently somehow there is the version of the doggy bag happening here. There's some left over, and so we're going to load this thing up, and you can take it with you. But then, verse 15, look what it says. She rose to glean... And Boaz commands his servant, saying, hey, let her glean even among the sheaves and don't insult her. So now it's like, forget the droppings here. Let her get into the main crop. Forget the, outs, you know, the outside of the fields or the outskirts. No, let her come into the field. And then this is great, verse 16. 
Also, you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it where she may glean. Do not rebuke her. (laughs) So now these guys have taken the bundles that they've actually harvested, and these are kind of like pre-processed bundles. And now he's telling his workers, hey, just take some of the some of the fruit of that and just dump it. Where, where she's at. Notice, where she may glean. So it's almost like they're walking along here and they're like, is she there? Yeah, okay. Dump, dump. You know, protecting her dignity. Whoopers, I dropped it. Hope she sees it. Okay, she does. You know, that's the idea. And again, how, how is this kindness not something that, that Ruth is just going, oh, what is going on here? You know, in one day, did I, you know, verse two, she's asking, I hope I can be around someone who will show me favor. And now where does she find herself? In a place where favor upon favor upon favor is being lavished on her. Someone who has been through what she's been through, experiencing this kind of kindness and provision would have been absolutely overwhelming. Well, she's had her day at the field. She made those requests or the desire of her heart known to Naomi before she left. Maybe I'll find favor with somebody. And now she returns home. And she does not return empty-handed. <laughs> Verse 17, we pick it up. It says this, So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephath of barley. And she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and she also took it out and gave Naomi what she had left over after she was satisfied. Her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. So you can kind of see what's happening here, right? She comes back. Naomi, before she left, was like, yeah, go ahead. You know, and now she comes back. What? what? What's an ephath? It's debated. It's debated. So, some would say it's a certain number of liters. Some would say this. I'm just going to say this. This much we know. It was a whole bunch. Lots and lots. Uh, depending on how you measure an ephath, it was likely that she needed help to get it back. And here we find not only that, but she also has the leftovers, you know, from what she had eaten, the roasted grain. And so she gives that to Naomi. And Naomi's, again, eating stuff she has not had in, in a long time. And you can kind of almost hear her like, you know, maybe some of this stuff's being said while her mouth is full. Like, Mom, where did you go? I mean, this is amazing. What happened? But then she finds out even more. Notice in the middle of verse 19. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. You can almost see Naomi just kind of like stopping in that moment like, no. And Ruth's reply, yeah. No, uh-huh. So then Naomi goes on in verse 20. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of the Lord, who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and the dead. And again, Naomi said to her, This man is our relative. 
He is one of our closest relatives. So this is just getting better and better. And everyone's going, wait, wait a minute. Do you realize something? God has been merciful, not only to you and me, but also to the memory of, of our deceased husbands. And, and, and all the, the, the shame that we've experienced in light of what's happened and the fact that there could be a future here. He's one of our closest relatives. He is a kinsman. He could be our kinsman redeemer. And that's a precious reality to Naomi in that moment. Ruth goes on in verse 21. Ruth the Moabitess said, Furthermore, he said to me, You should stay close to my servants until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter in law, It is good, my daughter, that you go with his maids so that others do not fall upon you in another field. The chapter comes to a close with this summary statement. So she, Ruth, stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So as Ruth conveys to Naomi, yeah, not only did I meet Boaz, not only has he lavished all this kindness on me and on us, but in addition to that, he wants me to stay around his people. He doesn't want me gleaning anywhere else. And everyone's going, that's good. These are dangerous times. That's a good thing. You, you should definitely do that. But you can also kind of, in the subtext here, Naomi's going, hmm, that's good. That's really good. Why? Because there's some serious matchmaking going on in her mind. Because truly, if this man, this kinsman redeemer is to carry that out, there's going to be some things that develop in the future regarding marriage and other things. And so then the summary, not only did, did, uh, did Ruth stay in Boaz's field until the end of the barley harvest, notice that time in those fields extended even into the wheat harvest, so it was longer than, than, than even initially discussed. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So how do we apply this to our lives today? This beautiful section of scripture. And, and one thing we would certainly see is that God is at work to accomplish his loving kindness even in the mundane, everyday elements of life. Look, at God is at work. God's doing something here. We've already discussed how there's a reason this book is here. Because the events in this book lead to the birth of the king, David. And the birth of the king, David, leads to the messianic line. And the messianic line leads to the salvation of sinners like you and me. So none of this stuff is just so happening to happen. No, this is deliberate work of God. And so we find here God is bringing out his, uh, the, the Hebrew term is hesed, but it means his faithful covenant-keeping love. We call it loving kindness. God's carrying out his loving kindness. And notice, it's in and through daily work. These are just... People have to go to the field to glean. People have to harvest. 
God's using that. God's working out his loving kindness through the kind of daily eating and drinking. There's a meal here. It's a normal meal. These happen all the time. God's working out his, his loving kindness through what looks like coincidence. But we also see here that, no, it's not at all. God's working out his loving kindness in and through compassion shared with others. Notice, again, Boaz's heart and his love. And God's showing his loving kindness through all of this as two precious women in a difficult time face an uncertain future. And so we need to hold on to that ourselves. When we're in the process of our daily work, when we're in the process of eating and drinking, when we're engaging in things and seeming coincidences come up in our lives, when, when we have the opportunity to share and care for others, when, when, when we are facing what looks like an uncertain future, can we hold on to the fact that God is the one who's accomplishing his loving kindness through all those things? We need to see that. I'm not sure where you're at today right now. I'm not sure what you're facing if there's uncertainty in the future you're looking at, if you're in a time of need, or, or maybe you're just kind of going through the motions right now, like life's just sort of clicking along and you think it doesn't really have any eternal import. You're just kind of caught up in the here and now and that's that. Wherever you're at, this passage is telling us we need to wake up and see that God is at work through the daily mundane things of life, which means there's no such thing as mundane because he's doing something. Another thing that we learn from this is that God's favor often comes through avenues we would never choose. With an abundance we could never imagine. God's favor often comes through avenues we would never choose with an abundance we could never imagine. There's no way, Naomi or Ruth would have chosen the trials that they underwent. And yet, without those, they would not be in the position now to see God's abundant grace. They wouldn't even be in a place to know this Redeemer unless they had gone through those trials. So, Again, I'm not sure where you're at today, but if you're facing that uncertain darkness that you're looking, you're staring at it right now, and you're going, I don't know what this means. I'm not sure how I'm getting through this. I don't know if we're surviving this. If you're in Jesus, if you're someone who's, who's trusted in Yahweh through Christ, you can know this for certain. God is taking you through this for the purpose of accomplishing his loving kindness in your life. You're facing this thing is not because of an absence of his loving kindness. No, instead, it is actually him using it to demonstrate his loving kindness. And that would lead us to the, the final thing would just be we need to learn to then walk with trust in Yahweh. That's what we'll do if we see these things. If we actually see that God is working in the mundane elements of life to accomplish his loving kindness, and if we actually see that God's favor and grace comes through avenues we'd never choose, but it also comes with an abundance we can never imagine. If we actually see that, then we're going to learn to trust God. We're going to walk with him in that way. You might ask, well, how, what does that mean? How, how do we see that in this passage? Well, the first thing would be we would need to really grow to understand his unwavering loving kindness. 
I mean, you look at Naomi and you're like, why wouldn't she be jaded? Look at the experience she went through. Yeah, it's almost like you, she could say to us, hey, forgive me for my cynicism, but hello, lost my husband, lost both sons. What am I supposed to do? Wouldn't you be? And yet, when we see in verse 20, that turning point, notice again, what does she say? May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and the dead. And then this man is our relative, one of our closest relatives. This man, wow, could be the one that is our kinsman. This man could be our kinsman redeemer. And so now there's hope for redemption in Naomi. And so we, we find that uh, when we understand what God's doing, when we see it more, we can grow in that way to, to grasp his loving kindness, his hesed more. Um, in days of uncertainty, we can learn to rest in his unfailing faithfulness. Now, we've described that already, but that's another way we can be walking with Yahweh and growing in our walk with Yahweh. Um, another thing, we can walk with trust in, in God as we seek ways to be an agent of his loving kindness in daily life. And this would be especially true when we encounter those who are in need. I mean, here it is. Boaz, he is a, a complete anomaly in that time. This is unexpected. You don't expect to run into a man like this in the era when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. You just don't expect to see this. But it's providential. And so the, the world is dangerous. And, and Boaz is saying, outside the realm of my influence and protection, Ruth, don't go there. It's dangerous. And so the ways he blessed her, the way he cared for her is something that all of us were going, huh. I mean, uh, you, you might look at it as, you know, Boaz is, is living his life in the way that all of Israel ought to be living in that time. But frankly, he's living his life the way, the way all of us should be desiring to live. Trusting Yahweh, trusting his word, looking at ways to, to live that out, looking at those around us and trying to be a conduit, an avenue for the loving kindness we've received from God. A, a final way that we can learn and grow in our walk with trust in God is to truly live amazed in our Redeemer. Look at Boaz, and what do you see? You see a picture of Jesus. Boaz, as a redeemer, gives us a preview of the redeemer. He, he follows God. He takes to heart God's law to love God and to love others. He acts with compassion. He exceeds the letter of the law by, by really understanding the heart of the law and, and, and living that out with others. I mean, even that idea of, you know, Okay, workers, I want you to take those, those, those bundles and just accidentally drop some behind you. I mean, that's, again, going above and beyond anything the law would say. Boaz is um, a redeemer acting as a refuge for Ruth in a dangerous world. And the principle for us would be Jesus, the redeemer, is our refuge in a dangerous world. Look at verse 12 again, that picture of under the wings of God as a refuge. Do you remember when Jesus uh, in the Gospels, in Matthew and also in Luke, he talks to Jerusalem and he laments and he says, how often have I wished to gather you under my wings as a hen 
gathers her chicks, but you would not have it? That's Christ. That's, that's, that's a picture of him. And that's how this passage connects with Christmas. Ruth comes back to Bethlehem a day after gleaning, and she didn't just come home with, come home with food. No, she came home with a lot more. If you look at Naomi's response, you come to see very clearly Ruth also brought home the hope of redemption. And that's what Advent is, isn't it? Anticipating, looking forward to redemption. And at this point in time, Naomi is just getting that first understanding of, wow, what could this mean? How could this work? Will Boaz redeem Ruth? Will he redeem our family line? And yet, Boaz, as we've said, is a redeemer who points to the redeemer. And later on in in, in the book, we're going to see how all these intricate events in this chapter will directly lead to David's kingly line, which is the messianic line. Yet here we see that Boaz as redeemer is acting as a God-provided refuge for Ruth in a dangerous world. Jesus, the Redeemer, is our refuge in a dangerous world. And yet he's even more. Because he goes beyond as the Redeemer who will usher in the new world where righteousness will dwell. Even as we sing this time of year, his kingdom is forever. So let's grow in our walk of trusting Yahweh, especially in dark times as we consider this Redeemer that Boaz is for Ruth and Naomi, let us also look forward to the Redeemer that he pictures. Our only refuge in a dangerous world. And if you're hearing this today and you've never come to that place of trusting in Christ to be saved, the call to you is turn to him today. Confess your sin to him Receive his forgiveness. Know what it means to have everlasting life in the one who came and gave up his life that you would live in him forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, we we ask that you would again cause us to understand and see these things. We ask that you would Help us to become more and more aware of how you accomplish your loving kindness even in the mundane, everyday elements of life. Your blessing often comes through ways we would never choose in terms of avenues of life and circumstance and difficulty, and yet the abundance you give is beyond anything we could ever dream of. So we ask that you cause us to walk with you, to trust in you, We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We now come to a time of participating in the Lord's table together. And if you would go ahead, if you haven't picked up the elements, feel free to... Oh, we got some ushers coming through here. Wow, this is kind of cool. All right. They're ready. So right here we've got some elements coming through if you need need some. And uh, this is a time to stop and to remember... And to consider what Christ has done to rescue sinful people like us. 
And I, I find it fascinating that in, in today's account that we were in, in Ruth chapter 2, that Boaz welcomed Ruth to his table to eat and to drink and to be refreshed. That's the picture we have here in the account today. And today, our great Redeemer, Jesus, welcomes all who follow him to eat and drink at his table. He gave his own body and blood to redeem us, to purchase us out of the slave market of sin, to make us his own. As the Redeemer, that's what he did. And so, for a moment right now, let's, let's silently go before God in prayer. And, and let's think on and remember our Redeemer who invites us to his table. We are, as Ruth, undeserving uh, we, we, in many ways, have nothing to commend ourselves, in every way, have nothing to commend ourselves to him. And yet the invitation remains, come, eat and drink and be refreshed. So let's pause and just remember that now. Lord, we, we are overwhelmed that you would invite us to your table We thank you for the picture of Christ that we see even in, in the hospitality of Boaz. A, a frail human depiction and yet one that points ahead to you, the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We confess to you that uh, there are many times when we are not in a place of awe with you. We, we uh, treat the things of you and your astounding blessings and grace as something that's mundane and everyday, but, it, but it's far from that. Why would you look upon a people as us to save us? It's nothing in and of ourselves. It's everything about your grace and your mercy, your compassion, your tender, loving kindness that you lavish on your people. So we're recipients of this grace. So Father, we ask that you would grace us to remember you and the, the cost that you would freely crush your son so that you would not have to crush our, us, that you forsook him on the cross, that you would never forsake us who are in him. Thank you that Jesus gave his life freely that we might live in him. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake together. As we enjoy the cup together, I'm thinking back to that, again, that reference of refuge under the wings of God. And the psalmist would write about that very same thing in Psalm 91. Psalm 91 says this, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. So as we partake of the cup together, 
let's rejoice that God is the one through Christ, our Redeemer, who rescues a people for himself. He is the God in whom we can place all trust without any reservation because he is completely faithful to carry out his loving kindness, his covenant faithfulness. And so as we remember what Jesus did in the shedding of his blood, we rejoice that we find covering under his wings, the perfect, full, unthwartable refuge that we have in Jesus. Let's partake together. Well, now we're going to have some time to express gratitude in song.